In November 2018, the Chinese scientist Zhang Kui He announced the birth of twins whose genomes had been edited during in vitro fertilization with the goal of conferring lifetime resistance to HIV. This first known use of CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing in human embryos was met with swift condemnation, and in some cases calls for a moratorium or an outright ban on the implantation of edited embryos. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with George Daly, Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Daly has co-authored a perspective article about the scientific and ethical hurdles posed by embryo editing and how the field can move forward. Dr. Daly, you write in your perspective article that this case will be remembered for the reckless flouting of widely articulated scientific, clinical, and ethical standards. So in all of that, what were his most egregious violations? I think the biggest violation was the lack of transparency. Since 2015, when we came together as an international community in Washington, D.C., in a meeting sponsored by the U.S. National Academies, the Chinese Academy, and the Royal Society in the U.K., we made a very, very firm commitment that any decisions about the practice of germline editing, that is, creating embryos whose genes have been modified to lead to a birth, that this would be done only after widely considered transparent deliberations on an international basis. And clearly this was done with a very significant degree of secrecy. And it was announced, I think, with the startling reality that it had already been done. So I would say the biggest violation was the commitment to a transparent, open process. So in your view, what are the established and maybe even the potential future acceptable uses of CRISPR-Cas9 technology? And where do you see the most controversy even in those? It's important to note, I don't, and I think it would be widely held in the scientific and bioethical community, that I don't believe and we collectively don't believe that currently there are any acceptable or permissible uses of germline gene editing. The science is simply too premature. Certainly, the degree of social engagement and deliberation and achievement of reasonable community support for any kind of use has just not been achieved. And so I think it's been widely established, and there has been in the last three years over 60 different learned societies and deliberative groups who've come together and actually written proposals and recommendations. And there's absolutely no group that is endorsed any single use at this time. Now, of course, there are both scientific hurdles and there are social, legal, and ethical hurdles. We've made a lot of progress on the scientific hurdles. I think there is an emerging sense that this is a technology, the technology of gene editing, primarily using CRISPR technology, that this one day can be done safely. And if we do want to alter the genes of an embryo, we could do it with very precise on-target effectiveness and minimal, perhaps negligible, off-target risk. Now that said, then there's a whole other issue about how do we, as a medical community, as a society at large, decide what are permissible as opposed to impermissible applications. 
And that's where I think the leading edge is still not without controversy, but there's fairly widespread support among bioethicists, among physicians, and now even through some public surveys that for couples who carry the burden of genetic disease and are at risk of having a baby afflicted by one of these devastating genetic diseases, we're talking about things like Huntington's or myotonic dystrophy or cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia, that it may be permissible for a couple to, in the context of in vitro fertilization, also employ gene editing to give them a chance of a healthy child. There's probably the best argument for permissibility there. However, then, there's a very broad range of other conditions that really aren't necessarily trying to get in front of devastating genetic disease, but rather just altering traits that put us at risk of particular conditions. Maybe there are traits that affect our possibility of having Alzheimer's in the future or our possibility of developing heart disease, or as in the Chinese case, the risk of a severe infection like HIV. Because we don't appreciate the trade-offs of the risks of this procedure versus the sort of less well-established benefits which may accrue in the future, most scientists would say, we're not ready to go into this area of disease risk. And then at the furthest end of the spectrum, where I don't think there's any support now or perhaps even in the future, is this area of evolving genes and manipulating what might be traits that we could consider as enhancements of human potential. Maybe there are traits that would influence our height or our eye color, or if one could ever envision, traits that might involve things like bravery or creativity or intelligence. This is where we start to get into the very, very thorny aspects of social equity and social justice, and we're certainly not ready to go there yet. Going back to on-target versus off-target, in a related article, Lisa Rosenbaum writes that the potential risks of germline editing do include the risk of off-target mutations that raise the specter of cancer, the risk of other diseases with a genetic basis if the locus has opposing effects on disease susceptibility. So do you think those are manageable risks? Well, we certainly need to gain more information. And I would certainly imagine with greater comfort and confidence in the techniques themselves, that one day we may get to the point where these are manageable. There is an enormous amount of science that remains to be done. There's only been a total of about six or so papers published to date with any significant experience of using this gene editing technology in human embryos. There's a slightly larger but still quite modest experience with using gene editing in the embryos of mice and other organisms. But let's say that we will one day be able to understand the performance of gene editing and be able to evaluate its effectiveness and be able to understand the degree of off-target risk. Now, there's almost no medical procedure that doesn't come with some balance of risk versus the range of benefits. And so we've tolerated risk when we've employed gene therapy. Initially, there were significant concerns about the mutational probabilities of using viruses to carry new genes into cells. And indeed, the first children that were treated in the, the trials for severe combined immune deficiency had an unacceptably high rate of cancer formation. The second and now third generation gene vectors have, we think, largely solved those problems. And kids can be treated. Indeed, we're achieving a very high degree of a cure of kids with severe combined immune deficiency. 
So I'm saying if we ever do decide to employ this technology for preventing disease in children from couples who are carrying that genetic burden, we're going to have to understand that these first uses will carry risk. Our hope is that we don't do it prematurely before we have a better understanding of that risk versus benefit trade-off. As you say, there have been actually few experiments in this area. How close are we to having established protocols for conducting such experiments? Well, that's something that we need. We don't have existing protocols. Indeed, one of the calls for action coming out of the most recent international conference in Hong Kong from the organizing committee was that we really needed to start defining the high standards. We had talked about the need for standards. We talked about the need for establishing a translational pathway. But the hard work is yet to be done. So the World Health Organization recently announced that they're putting together a committee who is going to be co-chaired by Peggy Hamburg, who's a former FDA commissioner. And the charge of that committee is in part to define what a regulatory path would look like. And it really does require establishing high standards of scientific efficacy, deep review of the standard operating procedures that would have to be in place in a laboratory to be practiced, and ultimately to be able to judge the experience and technical competency of any laboratory that would actually perform this in the context of an IVF trial. So there are high standards that have yet to be defined, and certainly that's one of the essential features of a pathway to clinical use. But even if you establish all of those regulatory standards, we as an international community have strongly asserted we continue to need social buy-in. There has to be a deep and ongoing discussion about the ethics of gene editing, even for things that might be as appealing and subject to rationalization as a disease, as a highly penetrant, devastating disease. There are some in our community who think we should never violate the integrity of the genome, that we should never cross that Rubicon of gene editing and playing God and changing our own heredity. It's not universally felt, but before we go forward, all of us in the international scientific community think that this isn't a judgment that should be left just to the scientists. It should be a judgment that is entered into only after broad societal engagement. Thank you, Dr. Daly.